0: This is an ABC podcast. It starts with flu-like symptoms. Sufferers experience high fever, a dry cough, shortness of breath or breathing difficulties.
1: Typically, in most cases, it progresses to a pneumonia. Uh, This is something, of course, that influenza doesn't normally do.
0: Severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, has now killed at least 78 people. But just weeks ago, the medical world hadn't even heard of it. From the 7.30 report, almost exactly 17 years ago. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this Rear Vision, we'll hear how Singapore and South Korea, partly because of their experience with previous coronavirus outbreaks, have managed this pandemic without locking people in their homes or shutting down their economies. Before we had SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's brought us the disease known as COVID-19, we had SARS-CoV-1. The disease it caused was SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. It appeared in late 2002. The outbreak was largely limited to China and Hong Kong, but there were a few hundred cases in Singapore, Taiwan and Canada, and a handful elsewhere. Thomas Abraham is the author of 21st Century Plague, the story of SARS.
2: SARS was a new disease that erupted out of southern China sometime in late 2002, November, December 2002. It spread very quickly across Guangdong province and the spread was aided immeasurably by the cloak of secrecy that the Chinese government placed on this disease. So it spread, cases started coming into Hong Kong, and it was only when a fairly significant number of cases started to be seen in Hong Kong, which was around January, February 2003, that the world became aware really of the full extent of this disease. Now what exactly was it? SARS is caused by a virus from the coronavirus family. And this is a large family of viruses, several of which already infect humans. If you have a cold, for example, a runny nose, that could well be a coronavirus infection. The natural home of these viruses appears to be in bats. So what happened in China was that it passed from bat probably to some other form of animal And from there to human beings, and the earliest who were infected were really people who were working in the live animal markets in Guangdong. So that's probably the route that the virus took from bat to
0: man. Doctors and nurses in southern China, seeing the first patients with SARS, realised it was something new.
2: They found that this was unlike any other kind of pneumonia that they had ever come across. It attacked patients far more severely, far more quickly. It spread far more easily to healthcare workers. I mean, a typical example of the way the spread would be you would have somebody come in with really severe pneumonia, very, very distressed breathing, lungs full of fluid. And typically, these people would need to be intubated. You'd need to put in a tube to force oxygen in and out of the lungs. And in the process of intubation, healthcare workers suddenly found that they were getting infected in huge numbers. And even when you had a patient in a ward, for example, that patient would infect everybody, others in the ward. And so this was extremely, extremely contagious. So people in southern China and knew about this. They knew this was something new. They knew this was something terrible. And, you know, they were rushing to stores, doing whatever they could, buying vinegar, buying face masks, buying Chinese traditional medicines, anything they thought would ward off this new disease. And there was a high degree of anxiety and panic in southern China. And news of this, of course, had trickled across the border to Hong Kong. One of the first recorded cases was a doctor from Guangdong who came to Hong Kong along with his family to attend a family wedding. And he was fine when he started traveling. He checked himself in a hotel and then he started feeling terrible. So he walked to the nearest public hospital. And fortunately, there was a big public hospital just down the road from his hotel. Checked himself in and told the nurses and the doctors there saying, you know, I'm from Guangdong, I've been dealing with cases like this, this is terrible, put me into isolation immediately, take every possible precaution, this is highly contagious. And his case really was what alerted the Hong Kong authorities to what this was. And he was really the first case that they'd actually seen that they could relate to this new disease that they had been hearing about from across the border. And so, in a sense, it was this doctor who really alerted not just Hong Kong, but the world as well.
1: Hong Kong residents are taking no chances. On the streets and in workplaces, thousands of people are wearing masks as the outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome worsens. Despite new cases of infection emerging daily in the densely populated territory, the government says there's no need to panic.
3: We urge every member of of the community to stay calm and also to take the preventive measures. We take this situation very seriously and we are doing everything we can to contain the spread of the virus.
1: An apartment block has already been quarantined after more than 100 residents fell sick.
0: SARS turned out to be a relatively rare disease. At the end of the epidemic in June 2003, there were roughly 8,000 cases and nearly 800 deaths. Singapore had 2,038 cases and 33 people died. Dale Fisher, Professor of Medicine at the National University of Singapore, says SARS was the first such outbreak in Singapore.
1: I think it's fair to say that in terms of a novel viral outbreak, it's the first in recent history. Obviously, everyone deals with outbreaks all the time whether they're they're foodborne outbreaks or or hospital-based outbreaks, multi-drug-resistant organism outbreaks, TB, chickenpox, There's, there's always plenty going on. But no, if we're talking about novel viruses where we don't really know a lot about it, then SARS was a defining moment.
0: How did Singapore manage that at the time?
1: I think probably the most fundamental difference was that there was no test we didn't have the technology that we do now. As you know, by early January, the genotype was known of the COVID-19 virus. But in SARS, it was really only at the, at the very end of the outbreak where we had a test. So we had to base our work on clinical criteria. And the first way we would screen people is that when they presented to hospital or, or a clinic, if they had the appropriate respiratory tract symptoms, which included fever, cough, things like that, and contact with someone believed to have SARS. So that was quite restrictive. So what we did with anyone that met those criteria, we would isolate them and see if they got better, basically. Now, it's very important that when you have a test, it's very sensitive so that you get the most people. It doesn't matter if you overcall it, but if you undercall it, it's a problem. So, in Singapore, and in fact, other countries that were affected by SARS, it was pretty badly undercalled at the beginning. As I say, there was no test.
0: It wasn't a major problem, the outbreak of SARS in 2003, was it? Nothing like what we're experiencing now.
1: The difference between what we're experiencing now and with SARS is that the amount of virus that a person would give off when they had symptoms, in COVID-19, it's highest at the beginning. In SARS, it was highest as time went on. So therefore, COVID-19 is spread through the community when the illness is very mild and people are less suspecting. With SARS, it wasn't spread in those early days. It was only when they were sick and they went to hospital. So therefore it wasn't spread through the community so easily. And lots of the outbreaks were hospital related. So this is a a fundamental difference and and indeed why it was so easy to control once we realized this, because we just ended up changing the the definition of of a case as anyone with respiratory symptoms almost by the end. And we just isolated all those people as they came into hospital. And we found we had to isolate about 40 people for everyone that actually had it. So we're back in this quandary of overcalling or undercalling. We started off undercalling and then eventually we overcalled it and eventually it was over. So the SARS outbreak only lasted months and we were able to effectively eradicate it from humans.
0: So the essential difference between these two coronavirus outbreaks, SARS and COVID 19, is the point at which they're infectious.
1: Yeah, there's there's many differences. The most significant difference is that it's transmitted early in the illness. The peak is at like day three or four of symptoms is when you've got the most viral shedding. You've got the most contamination of the environment around you. It's those early days where it transmits, whereas SARS was when you were most sick. And when you're most sick, you're actually already in hospital so it's whether you're spreading through the community, or whether you're spreading through a hospital when you're sick. So during SARS, the people that got sick were, were visitors to hospital, they were other patients, they were healthcare workers, but not in large numbers, obviously. And we could control it because we could do fairly strict infection control in hospital. But once you've got a community organism, then you need the response from the community. And that's very, very challenging at times because the messaging has to be clear, the, the buy-in has to be clear, the, the commitment from all levels of government and the community has to be clear. So it's a, it's a lot tougher.
0: This is Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. And we'll come back and find out how Singapore applied what it learned during the SARS outbreak to the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, let's find out a little more about coronaviruses. How do viruses jump from animals to people? It's a question of access and ability. Can the virus reach the cells of a new host? And once there, can the virus's proteins recognise and bind to the receptors on those cells? If so, that's all it takes. The virus can now enter the cell and begin to replicate, infecting the host. Lottie Tajuri is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences and Medicine at Bond University.
3: Well, if you look at the, the genome of those viruses that affect humans, we obviously look at how aligned they are with animal viruses. We know, for example, that SARS is actually a 96% close to the genome of bat coronavirus. So there are many similarities in terms of sequence. And if there are similarities in terms of sequence, it means there are also similarities in terms of protein expression. However, the difference is if a virus is associated to affect animals only, it means that the virus has what it takes to recognize a receptor on those animals. So it's very important that the virus express a particular viral protein, which will then dock on a particular target cell of those animals. The thing now is that, yes, you can actually end up with mutations where, unfortunately, those viral proteins start to have some sort of affinity for human cell proteins. And if those receptors from human cells are anchored by those coronaviruses, then you can understand that they can simply infect us.
0: Both SARS and MERS, viruses thought to be derived from bats, seem to have jumped to humans via an intermediate animal.
3: The significance of that is that, you know, like as an example, MERS, for example, what happened here is the hypothesis around that was that a bat coronavirus actually infected camels. And those camels, once infected, were infecting humans. So there was a a double jump here that occurred. And most of the people that went sick uh, with this was people working in close proximity to camels. So you can understand why, for example, the Arabic Peninsula was actually quite affected. And this is the source of the outbreak. 80% of all the MERS cases were actually in Saudi Arabia. So it shows how incredible such viruses can, in terms of evolution, come forward and end up with mutations and jump from one species to another species. And that is a massive, absolutely a massive kind of worry that all the healthcare system and organization are quite afraid of. I mean, I told you just before that SARS, for example, was an outbreak in 2002. But then look, 10 years later, we got MERS and now around seven to eight years later, we have the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that is an extreme big worry that we have this kind of trend where, unfortunately, we start to be the host of those new viruses. And
0: could it be that there are many other coronaviruses sitting in bats, bat populations, just waiting for the opportunity to jump in the same way that these other ones have?
3: Absolutely. I mean, this is frankly, I mean, in my arena in biosecurity, because I also do work in biosecurity. That is something that I put forward. I mean, if we have that trend of appearance of those new viruses, I can certify without really speculating that this trend is going to go and continue. You know, this, I mean, this is a very interesting question you just raised here. You know, we, we focus a lot, obviously, and this is very important, on what is happening with this current crisis. But um, my way of thinking is also trying to state to everybody in the biosecurity field as well as health-based security field as well to to state that we need to obviously prevent what the future is going to to be. I know for a fact that the, the best way to obviously overcome those new viruses that will come is obviously to put a lot of effort in prevention, to come up with preventative bios. And what are those? To think very cleverly how we can prevent the spread if there is an outbreak, but also obviously think about how we are going to come up with research and how we could prevent those new viruses from infecting humans.
0: Is that an easy question to answer?
3: The question that you just raised here is not easy at all. I mean, how can we predict what will be the new virus? Look what is happening, for example, for the flu virus. The flu virus every year can come up with a mutation. And what happens there is that if the new strain, for example, that will hit us this year has nothing to do with the vaccine that we actually developed last year, we are actually in some way very much vulnerable to that new strain. I'll just give you an example of how Important, what I'm just saying, is, if you look, for example, at the flu in 1918, the Spanish flu, it killed between 50 and 100 million individuals. Well, that flu, that particular virus, came up with a mutation where we were not prepared at all in an immune way of thinking to counteract.
0: Deep inside this high-security lab is a deadly virus that's already killed 200 people. These Australian scientists are studying a strain of MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, and it could arrive on our shores.
1: I think we could well get a case. Uh, There have been cases now in 11 countries. We have the facilities and the expertise of staff to provide care for an infected person.
0: So far, MERS cases have been recorded globally with the virus spreading to Africa, Europe, the United States, and now Asia. One of the countries that's coped best with the current COVID pandemic is South Korea. Just as Singapore learned from the SARS outbreak in 2003, South Korea was able to learn from experience, an outbreak of MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, in 2015. This time around, with a new virus and a much bigger outbreak, South Korea appears to have flattened the curve without closing down its economy.
1: They got up to 900 cases a day, I think was their, was their highest case, and they hit sort of 8,000 people that were infected from these religious events. But they just ramped up everything. There is nothing magical. There's many colleagues from around the world that do outbreaks in the sort of true specialty discipline sense are aware of the measures, you know, and it's, it's isolating cases, it's quarantining of contacts. It's ramping up laboratory testing and it's community engagement as well as logistics. And all Korea did was ramp them all up and get success. They they didn't close their roads. They didn't tell businesses to shut. Now, I think a lot of people did shut because they thought this is the right social thing to do. And people behaved and they stayed home without being told to stay home. This is what my colleagues in Korea tell me. So, you know, to get that community response, that social responsibility of behaviour was a key thing, but government and health department were able to ramp up the testing, ramp up the isolation capacity. They found 4,000 beds to, to keep all their positive cases. They, they took over 23 dormitories so they could keep them all together because they all had the disease. They didn't need to be kept apart, but this was how they did it. They ramped up their isolation, their contact tracing, their testing, and just Brought it all back down, and China did this in Wuhan. They created 50,000 beds to isolate cases. Everyone talks about the two hospitals that were built in 10 days. They weren't sophisticated functioning hospitals. They were more—they they were for the mild cases. They were—they were effectively isolation facilities. So they did that. They took over stadiums, made makeshift hospitals in the stadiums. Doctors and nurses from other provinces would come to the, to the makeshift hospitals and, and staff them. And the doctors from Wuhan stayed looking after the, the critically sick. Of course, that was linked to a lockdown, but no one would criticize Wuhan. They were, they were ground zero. You can't blame the first place for being unaware. We are in a very grave situation, health-wise with the COVID pandemic. In terms of the cohesion
2: of the society, the confidence, the response which is necessary, it's absolutely crucial for us to hold together, to respond effectively to the immediate challenge and also to give people confidence that we can cope with this, we have the resources, we know what we are doing, we're ready for what lies ahead.
0: Singapore's Prime Minister Lee. Dale Fisher says this time around, Singapore was ready when the new coronavirus turned up. As you
1: mentioned earlier about SARS, you know, there, there's been a lot of preparation going on and even though only 200 people were diagnosed with SARS in Singapore, a lot more people needed to be isolated and, and managed accordingly, even if we ended up finding that they had another cause for their pneumonia. So therefore for, if you like, a decade, there's been work on, on infrastructure development, isolation beds, protocols, laws, There's been a lot of work done towards the what if, what if this happens. And of course, the biggest what if is happening now. You know, we've got a disease that's potentially very lethal. It's easily spread through the community and it's happening in a highly connected world. So the what if is coming true. So that's the longer term. The next thing is, is that from December 31st, we got moving. It was early January that the genome was, was announced, so we were getting our, our testing in place. We were going through all the protocols, all the laws. What would we do when this happens? You know, when we get to our first case, when we get to our 10th case, when we get to our 100th, what happens if there's community transmission? All these things. How are we going to do the contact tracing? How are we going to scale up the quarantine? All these types of things. Where are we going to isolate people? This all happened for us in January and February. Our first case was January 23rd. We already had tests within a week, 10 of the larger public acute hospitals all could do tests. So we were ramped up very quickly. We were ready when it got here. I mean, testing is the the cornerstone of control. And I must say, that's been a, a difficult problem with many countries around the world is the difficulty accepting that it can be controlled. Many people are applying a flu model. And indeed, this is why I believe the Director General was slow to call it a pandemic, because he felt that would leave countries to bring out the pandemic playbook, which is flu. And this is not flu. And you've still got some people saying it's just a flu. But the thing is, you can't control flu. Eventually you have to mitigate. But in this disease, you don't have to mitigate. I guess you mitigate when you're out of control, but this can be controlled. And and even when it is out of control, you can bring back the control as we saw in both China and Korea.
0: What about the idea of lockdown? Has that happened in Singapore?
1: No, no, no. This is not a conventional strategy for an outbreak. You know, even Ebola, we didn't lock down. But what's happening here is is clearly when some countries that have being caught unawares, they literally don't know where all their cases are. They don't have the capacity to find them, test them. They don't have the the capacity to contact trace, to quarantine, to enforce anything. So they're overwhelmed. Their public health response is overwhelmed. So it's everybody stay home. And to me, this is the other way. I'd rather concentrate on the people with the virus or the contact than do it to everybody.
0: In the last 24 hours, Italy has reported more than 900 deaths. That's its largest daily figure since cases were first reported there. In a Milan hospital, this doctor is hoping the effects of the restrictions will soon ease the pressure the health system is under. Certainly, this is an extraordinary situation. We did not expect a situation like this that would last for so long and be so dramatic. I think now, with the help of the population who are respecting the rules they have been given, probably we will be able to ride out this wave and begin to see the effects that the behaviour of the population will bring. And we should see less people arriving in the emergency ward and we will be able to better look after the patients.
1: To move forward... There's really two things have to happen. Firstly, the health system has to recover. All the the overfilled hospitals, the ICUs, the the dead bodies, to be frank, everything needs to be sorted out. The health workers probably need a day off. (laughs) So there needs to be some recovery of the health system. So you would argue that's probably the first thing that would happen. The more complex thing is can you get your systems in place so that it doesn't come back. And if you reopen and your approach to containing COVID-19 hasn't changed, there's no reason why it won't happen again. Now, when we were in China, we saw their numbers coming down. It was in February and all their lockdowns started in, I think, January 23rd. So they'd been going for almost a month when we were there and their numbers were down significantly. But the remarkable thing we found was that they were ramping up. You know, we would meet someone who's got a laboratory and he might be able to do 1,000 tests a day, and he said, but hopefully I, within a month we'll be able to do, you know, five or 6,000 tests a day. So we're thinking, okay, because they've always been one step ahead, of course, they're getting ready to reopen so that when it comes back, they can be all over it. They can shut down those transmission chains. They can test liberally. They can contact trace, isolate, you know, basically what we're all, well, what Singapore and, well, let's just say what Singapore is doing now, which is just that readiness to to take on new cases. China was doing that at the time when their numbers were coming down. So they, they knew it would come back because, you know, less than 1% of their population has, has been affected. So they're still very immunologically vulnerable. And that's what Italy and Europe have to do, or any country that's locked down. Presumably, you've locked down because you couldn't deal with it. So when you unlock, you need to be able to deal with it. And basically, do what you should have done in January and February.
0: Professor Dale Fisher, Professor of Medicine at the National University of Singapore and Chair of the World Health Organization's Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. The other people you heard were Lottie Tajuri, Associate Professor in Biomedical Sciences at Bond University, and Thomas Abraham, the author of 21st Century Plague The Story of SARS. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.